You're listening to Harper Audio Presents, a podcast that brings you conversation and inspiration from your favorite authors, editors, and creators, giving you new perspectives on the world of books, culture, and the arts. We are part of the HarperCollins Presents Network of Podcasts. Stephen Dubner is an award-winning author, journalist, radio, and TV personality. He's best known as the co-author of the books Freakonomics, Super Freakonomics, and Think Like a Freak. Those books have sold more than 7 million copies in more than 40 countries. Dubner's also the host of Freakonomics Radio Podcast, which gets 5 million downloads a month. The book Freakonomics, published in 2005, was an instant international bestseller and cultural phenomenon. Hailed by the critics and readers alike, it still appears regularly on the New York Times bestseller list. Super Freakonomics followed in 2009 to similar acclaim, and in 2010, a documentary film version of Freakonomics was chosen as the closing film of the Tribeca Film Festival. The third book in the Freak trilogy, Think Like a Freak, was published in 2014 and immediately took up a long residency near the top of the international bestseller lists. Dubner also maintains the popular Freakonomics blog, which has been called the most readable economics blog in the universe. And that blog leads to Dubner and Levitt's newest book, When to Rob a Bank, publishing this week by William Morrow. I'm Anna Maria Alessi, and joining me today is Stephen Dubner. Thank you, Stephen, for joining us. Hi. Thanks for having me be joined. You're busy with a lot of things, but what I want to focus on today is your book writing and your new book, When to Rob a Bank, which publishes tomorrow from William Morrow. Um, Now, let's start at the very beginning. And as I understand it, you first came to New York City with the intent of becoming a musician. You got a recording contract, but before committing to the life of a rock star, you researched what life would be. as a musician, and you consulted with Bruce Springsteen and R.E.M. <laughs> and others, and you decided that li- that life was not appealing to you, so you chose a different pursuit. So tell us about that. That is mostly accurate. Um, when we say that I consulted with Bruce Springsteen and R.E.M., it is true that I talked to them, but it, it wasn't it wasn't really that formal. But I did. So yeah, I was in a band, and by the time we got to New York, um, we'd already had we already had a record deal. So we didn't we we kind of quote, made it in North Carolina where I went to college and afterwards and we got our record deal and then moved up here to make our record. And then, yeah, I did have access to some, um, some you know, very well-established um, people like Springsteen who I just met briefly, and, you know, backstage at this little club one night. And, and then um, R.E.M., who was a young band like us down in the South, a few, st- several steps ahead of us, and they were super nice guys and really helpful. The Del Fuegos was a band that we toured with that were pretty good buddies. And, and yeah, I, I basically just looked down the road. We'd been doing this for, you know, I'd been playing in bands since I was a kid, just like I'd been writing since I was a kid. And it's incredibly fun to play music, especially live, but also recording, and it's incredibly fun to be in a band so the the urge to like be a quote rock star I think is pretty understandable. But the closer we got to the reality of it, and it was literally while we were doing pre production on our first record, I just kind of looked down the road and I thought I don't know if I want that life. Like I know it's fun. I love writing music. I love playing it. 
but the, it, there were two things. One is um, you're constantly going somewhere, not making your own schedule so much, and that would really make it hard to have a kind of normal family-ish life, which I wanted. And the other thing is I didn't want to be, I didn't want to do something with my career, with my life, where you were so kind of dependent on approval and, um, <laughs> I mean, I became a writer, so it's not seemingly so different, but it was really different. You know, being in the public eye was not very appealing to me. It's really fun, like, the first three or four times you're recognized in public, and then after that. Yeah. And that's what I gleaned from talking to these other guys, which is, like, it's really fun to go around to play arenas or big clubs, whatever, but to have that as your life, I just didn't think um, that was for me. So, yeah, I quit. Uh, which w seemed to be a pretty radical solution at the time, but and, and I have some regrets about it. I wish we had made our first record because we worked so hard to you know to get there. Um, but ultimately, I'm much much happier, I think, as a writer than I would have ever been as a rock star. And so, was it just after that that you decided to go up to Columbia and get your MFA? Yeah, so I'd I'd always been a writer. I uh, my dad was a worked at newspapers and we had a family newspaper that we literally published I, I was the youngest of eight kids so we had a lot of correspondence we would literally publish our own little tiny newspaper and I started a high school high school paper and I yeah. wrote for the paper in college and then even while I was in the band I did a lot of music criticism and some other ju journalism so I'd always been a writer and I always loved writing and I thought I was pretty okay at it and then I had to decide you know what's it going to be and there I was there were kind of three things I was thinking about becoming one uh, a shrink a psychologist or psychiatrist and then I realized I wanted to help people but I thought I wouldn't be able to uh, you know be around other people's problems all day I just didn't, didn't think I could handle it then I wanted to be uh, a financial like consultant like I, I didn't really ever want to be an investor like the whole idea of just making money for the sake of making money never appealed to me even though I grew up poor and I wanted to make some money, it just it seemed boring. So um, what was the appeal at all to finance? To be a financial planner or a consultant, um, a per, you know, kind of personal financial consultant, would have combined um, the psychology part, which I liked, helping people, with like money, which was always a huge um, area of interest to me in that um, it's amazing how often irrational we are when it comes to money and how we make decisions that on paper we know we shouldn't make, uh, how the emotion gets the better of us. And ultimately, that was the imp those were the curiosities that ultimately led to stuff like Freakonomics, which yeah. was I was just always really interested. So I didn't become a financial planner, um, but I did, yeah, I did become a writer. I went to Columbia, which was um, a really great experience for me. I was living in New York and I went to the MFA program in fiction. They're, they're non, I would have done the nonfiction program, but it wasn't very prominent then. There were yeah. just a handful of writers. It just wasn't a bit, now it's different. Now it's like half nonfiction because the market has changed a yeah, lot. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so yeah, that was a good experience. So. And your first book published in 1998 and it was called Turbulent Souls and now renamed as Choosing My Religion. Tell us about Hansen's Law and how that relates to choosing your religion. Oh my gosh, that's, I remember there is such a thing as Hansen's Law and it's it has about, something to do with um, that which the, the grandfather something insists upon that the son chooses to forget, the grandson chooses to remember. It's like the law of return kind of. So this book, Turbulent Souls, or yes, as you said, we renamed it, we republished it as a, uh, Choosing My Religion years later, um, grew out of a personal story, a family story, 
um, that I first wrote about the New York Times Magazine. And basically, my parents were a pair of Brooklyn-born Jews, kind of standard-issue, first-generation American Jews in the U.S., one of whom was from a very religious family, still Orthodox, and the other from a, a, a more secular, assimilating family. And before they met, my parent, my eventual parents, they both converted to Catholicism, which was a very rare um, and for their families and for themselves a kind of traumatic event. They were pure faith um, conversions. They weren't, you know, nothing to do with persecution, even though yeah. it was during the Second World War, had nothing to do really with the war per se. And so they ended up... Um, essentially being cut off from their families, moving to the boondocks of upstate New York, which is where I grew up, and they became very, very, very Catholic. Uh, and so I grew up, um, as I said, in eight, a family of eight kids. I was the last. Uh, that's how Catholic they became. And uh, I, like my brothers before me, was an altar boy from the time I was very little. And, um, and my dad died when I was a kid. Um, and then finally, when I, you know, became an adult, um, I knew always that they had been this thing called Jewish, but I had no sense of what it was. And, and they didn't talk about it much. Not, they didn't hide it. It was just, you know, by the time I was born, they'd been Catholic for like 25 years. Yeah. So um, when I moved to New York with the band originally, and then I left music and then began to write full time, um, I just got curious about what it meant to do what they had done. Uh, it was a story, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't really th even thinking, I wasn't thinking about writing about it. It was just a kind of family project. And I began to interview my mother, which was difficult and interesting. Then I began to seek out members of my father's family, who I didn't know at all. And over the course of trying to uncover the story of why they had converted, which was what animated my quest, uh, this took several years, four, five, six years. And during that time, I became exposed to, during my reporting, I guess you'd call it, a lot of um, Jewish stuff, religion, culture, politics, language, music, et cetera, et cetera. And gradually, I kind of found myself, quote, returning to Judaism, even though I'd, I'd never personally been Jewish, but my family before me had. So, yeah, so I ended up becoming now, Jewish. How old were you at that point? Oh, it began when I was in my mid-20s. It was a process that unfolded over five, six, seven years. I guess I wrote the article about my family in the New York Times Magazine uh, in 1996, so I was 33, mm -hmm. and then I published uh, Turbulent Souls in, I think, 1998. So, and now... You know, years later, I'm just another regular Jewish writer on the Upper West Side of Manhattan <laughs> with a Jewish wife who grew up just regular Jewish and two kids, both of whom have had their, uh, you know, one a bar mitzvah, one a bat mitzvah, and now we're just standard issue ourselves all over again. So you've also written Confessions of a Hero Worshipper and the children's book, The Boy with Two Belly Buttons, which I love. But you're, of course, best known for your work um, co-authoring with Stephen Levitt, the book Freakonomics, which has sold, what, more than 4 million copies so, yeah. in 35 different countries. And it's, it's led to a follow-up of Super Freakonomics and the documentary film and a radio program and the award-winning blog that's been called the most readable economics blog in the universe. Which isn't saying that much. Most economics <laughs> blogs are not readable at all, well, but anyway. It is from that blog that you have extracted pieces for the new book, When to Rob a Bank. And you, you call them well-intended rants from the blog. <laughs> now, tell me a little bit about how you curated this. 
it was a big task with a number of phases, I guess. So uh, Levitt pretty much left it to me. This is not really, you know, he's busy being an economist. He, yeah. he wrote a lot for the blog, and I would say that at least half of the posts in the book are his. Probably, may, I, never, I haven't actually, I should, probably should know that, but, but he, over the years, he wrote a lot of really great stuff on the blog. So he certainly contributed a ton. When it came to putting the book together, this is kind of like what I do. Like I'd been yeah. a, a magazine editor. I'd been at the New York Times for a bunch of years. And, you know, I think the one task I did at the New York Times that made this seem doable uh, was I was there when the New York Times magazine celebrated its 100th anniversary, which I think was 1996. I think the magazine began in 1896. And we put out three um, issues, three centenary issues of the magazine, which sounds, in retrospect, pretty pompous, like we're so great. It's not just one issue can handle. <laughs> but um, one of them was a, a, a photography issue, which I um, was the editor on. Oh, wow. And that one was fun in part. I love photography. I love it as a mode of storytelling and journalism and so on. But I also love it because that was how I met my wife. My wife was one of the photographers whose Aww. work was featured in it. And it was, um, and so I kind of learned about her through that, then shortly thereafter was introduced to her. So that was a good issue. The other issue that I worked on a lot was literally just um, short excerpts from articles that had been published in the Times Magazine from over 100 years. So it could have been anyone. So how so, many? There must have been... I mean, there had been, let's see, in it, let's say it's a weekly 52 weeks for 100 years, okay? And then an average of maybe 10 to 20 articles per yeah. week. So, you know, many, 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 many thousands. And uh, so you'd literally just go through old issues and you'd be reading, you know, W.E.B. Du Bois writing about race. You'd be yeah. Norman Mailer writing about politics and any, you know, anything you could possibly think of. So obviously, we didn't read every word of every issue, but I, along with a few other people, read a whole, whole, whole lot. And that is just a, um, it's a very humbling but really awesome thing to do. Uh, you have to really, the biggest thing I find you have to do in a task like that is you have to really trust yourself. You have to say, this is interesting because it's interesting. Not this is interesting because it, you wrote it. Yeah, yeah, because it has the veneer of importance or whatever. Or, and so I was able to take that big task going forward into putting together when to rob a bank. Didn't seem suddenly so hugely daunting. There were, as you said, about eight thousand posts. The first cut, the first triage, I had uh, two um, editors people who'd worked as editors on the blog, one who was the current editor, one who was the most recent previous editor, I asked them to both go through and read everything, or at least skim everything, and put together their their first cut, which probably got us down to maybe 500 pieces okay, or 1,000 yeah. pieces. And then I kind of did the same on my own independently, then we compared, and then I began to really do a lot of cutting and pasting of the posts and, re, and a lot of rereading. And then once I got... Um, once I got it down to a, a book length, which was hard to do because, yeah. I mean, 8,000 blog posts could fill up, you know, whatever. We'd, and it came down to 133 posts. 133 yeah. posts, right. Yeah. So we could obviously filled up, you know, 40, yeah, 50, right. 60 books worth. But most of it doesn't deserve to be in a book. And that was what was fun is picking the very best of the best. Yeah. And then pairing, putting them together in the right order. Uh, in the right chapters, um, try to, you know, I always like in any kind of writing, even a compilation, you try to always pull, you know, put a thread in the beginning yeah. that you can pull through later. Yeah. So um, I think, I mean, this is, I wouldn't take my word for it, 
but I think that the reading experience is really great, like, and it reads like a book, um, even though it yeah. is um, diff different posts. Um, and the editing, so that was the first couple phases, and the last phase was literally just editing and rewriting as needed. And we tried not to alter anything. You know, we, we didn't arrange it chronologically because that would have kind of felt like a time yeah. capsule. We so did it more thematically. We did it more yeah. thematically. And so the only things that really needed editing were sometimes when something had become really outdated or a reference didn't make sense anymore. But then also some of the fun was we'd want to amplify a little bit. So there might be a post like the When to Rob a Bank post that gave the book its title was a really, was a cute little neat post. But then once, especially once we decided it was going to be the title chapter, the, the, the title post, um, went back and dug up um, some data on bank robberies, which was so interesting. So again, it became parts of the book are original as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you pulled through more stuff. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I saw that Publishers Weekly says that When to Rob a Bank is lively, self-deprecating writing that ensures an entertaining read for fans and new readers alike. So that's, that's the idea. That's, 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 an early, that's an early blurb. And yeah. It sounds pretty promising. Yeah, the reviews are weirdly great for, uh, you know, a book that was, you know, it's funny because it took us many years to want to put out a book from the blog. And the reason is that we always thought the blog was just like our little scratch pad, our yeah. little sandbox to write stuff kind of casually. And it was. On the other hand, um, it was also a place for the two of us to just keep our minds active on the kind of things that we think about and write about in our books, which often include a lot of more academic research. And so it just runs the gamut. It's, you know, if you are interested at all in crime or sports or politics or names or customs or the way people do things, the way it's we really make decisions, fun. there's kind of everything in it. It's a real kitchen sink kind of book. Uh, and, and it was, you know, it was hugely fun to write during the 10 years that we wrote it. And it was hugely fun to kind of put it together now. You know, I've not spoken to an author who has a regular writing partner in the way that you do. So tell us a little bit about that partnership and, and how it works when you guys are working on a, on a long-form book. So now that we've written three books together from start to finish, uh, Freakonomics, Super Freakonomics, and Think Like a Freak, there's a lot of differences from book to book. If, like, let's say that we have a chapter and a third of a given chapter is built around an academic paper that Levitt wrote. So the process for that would be I'm going to read the paper, and then I'll talk about it with Levitt and try to understand, uh, you know, how we might want to write that story. Because, you know, an academic paper bears almost no relationship to a book. It's kind of like, you know, you ever see what cashews look like when they're growing on a tree? You would never eat them. They look nothing. <laughs> or, you know, I sometimes think of the first people who ate like an artichoke. Like, how do you yeah, figure yeah, out yeah. that there's something yeah. inside there? So there, it's kind of a translation process. Yeah. And so he and I will talk that through. Um, but he's also, for an academic economist, he's really good at, I believe, at telling stories too. And he's, so we'll talk about, you know, here's, like, here's a chapter that we want to be about X. And so what are some things that go together that could go into that? And we might come up with a list of 20 of which three are good. And then we think about how they bounce off each other. And then I write it. You know, I'm the writer. Um, I'll write a draft. And then I send it to him. And then depending on whether it's good or bad, you know, he'll send it back with a lot of comments or not a lot of comments. Um, and if he doesn't reply at all, 
then I know it's really bad. Because oh. he's um he's very uh, conflict averse. Yeah, so he doesn't want to. He, he doesn't want to say, "Wow, Dubner, yeah, that was totally total crap that time." He doesn't want to. So if you don't hear back at all, so you have to pursue him for this. Yeah, but it's really helpful. I've learned from that. That's the best way to let people down is just to not reply <laughs> really? at all. I, I have. I hate to say it. I have. Yeah. I'll find that sometimes if we're really struggling with something and we've gone back and forth by email, you know, five emails each in the course of two hours or two days, whatever, one five-minute phone call fixes it. Good. And it's something I always try to bring into my real life, yeah. like my family yeah. life and stuff, is yeah. that you just remember, you know, I, I love communication of all kinds. I love technology of all kinds. But they're not all the same, and it's. Um, I think that email and even the written word, in some ways, are more of a complement than a substitute for spoken. Yeah, that's interesting. Now, you've. I've read one example of how your writing, and your approach to the world has changed a life. In that, the woman who decided to try online dating and then ended up getting married. Do you have? Do you have other examples of how folks have come up to you and said, oh, you know, since reading your book and implementing some of these theories or th this way of looking at the world, this has changed and this is what my life is now like? We do. It's, it's, it's pretty awesome um, and humbling and a little scary to know that when that people read our stuff and then make Try life it. decisions <laughs> based on it. So we have written about what we call the upside of quitting, we, right? Oh, we, we right. estimate yes, that, um, we, we argue that, that a lot of people are just too wed to this notion that, you know, a winner never quits and a quitter never wins. And that's kind of a, a, a kind of, you know, outdated aphorism that really doesn't take into account economic thinking at all, the idea of opportunity cost. Like if I, if I didn't stick with this whatever job, program, project, relationship that I'm doing, how would I be spending that time or money or those brain cells otherwise? And so um, when we wrote about that and did a podcast about it, we've heard from gosh, at least hundreds, maybe thousands of people wow. who cite it as their inspiration for quitting something. It might have been a habit that they had that they kind of thought was virtuous, but they hated. Like a lot of people quit running because of us, I'll tell you that. Seriously? That was like one of the number one. That was a big one. You know, people think I can't quit because I'll be a bad person. Um, but, you know, what are the costs? Well, there are some physical costs on your body. Running, I personally don't believe running is a great physical exercise because it is pretty tough on the joints. It's pretty time-consuming. Um, wouldn't really say it's dangerous. You could get hit by a car. But the fact is that there are people who, like, they consider themselves a runner, so they're going to spend, you know, eight, ten hours a week running. Could they improve their lives some some other way? But then there were people who quit, you know. People wanted to know if they should quit their job to go back to grad school, quit grad school to go back to the job, quit their job to go into the military, not reenlist in the military, leave a relationship, so on and, and on and, and on. what did they do? They came onto the blog and they, they left posts and you, you engaged with them? Or how did they you know, on? we don't, honestly, we don't have that much time to say, engage. Yeah. People write to us and we try to, you know, we read every email. Yeah. We can't reply to all of them, right. but we try, to, we try to respond. I mean, you know, there was a guy who was a professional race car driver who decided that he was kind of on the bubble of being successful and not. He decided not to pursue that. Um, there were, oh gosh, a lot. Um, and then we also set up a website called freakonomicsexperiments.com oh, yeah. where we encouraged people, yeah. if they were having a hard time making a decision, to come onto our site, fill out a questionnaire, and we would flip a coin for them. And then if they would... If they followed the advice, we'd follow up with them to see if quitting made them worse off or better off. And the short answer seems to be not worse off and maybe a little bit better off. So a lot of people have quit stuff and hopefully started new stuff because of it. Our argument was never you should quit 
and, and not do, do nothing, right? Yeah. You shouldn't sit on your couch and eat Cheetos all day right. instead of doing anything. Find an alternative. Yeah. Um, a lot of people have gone to college to study economics because of what we've Aww. written, which I don't think is always a great thing, and here's <laughs> why. Because they get to econ, and then they expect it to be like Freakonomics, yeah. and it's not. not. It's not. It is true that academic economics is becoming more interested with the kind of stuff that we write about, but not fully. Um, right. And then, you know, with Think Like a Freak, especially our, mo our previous book, yeah. the one closest to When to Rob a Bank, that had a lot of advice for basically making better decisions, whether in work or your family or in politics. And we get unbelievable emails every day from people who say, there, 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 there are kind of two different things. One is, oh my God, I'm so glad that I'm not the only one out there who thinks like oh. this. Because I've always thought that I was a, quote, freak. Oh, and now it's, yeah. I'm glad to know. And the other is, you know, people are happy to know, learn kind of the, the tricks yeah. that we um, propose that are better, that are ways to think about problems more creatively, more productively, more rationally. And so, yeah, um, I, you know, I have no way to quantify how much we've actually, what kind of effect we've actually had, but, um, but it's not so, zero. Going back to your earlier, you know, choices and what you wanted to do with your life, it sounds like you've got, you've gotten very close to one of your options, which was, <laughs> which was the therapist. Maybe right? so, maybe because so. Because look at this, now yeah. you're, you're helping all these people and, and changing their lives. Yeah, I don't so know how I, much we actually help. I'm probably, uh, it probably sounds. But it, I think it, you do. If you, if you're, if you're helping to adjust a, a fundamental way of thinking and you're making it more productive and 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 more sort of it really is somewhat inspiring yeah in the way that you uh it. i'd like to think so you know it's i mean i never wanted to be the kind of writer who wrote just to say what i have to say right. i never consider myself the kind of person who has such important thoughts that i need to be a writer in order to express them and, and in fact my my writing career began kind of accidentally with two books that were memoirs. So I never, I was never the kind of person that wanted to write about myself. It happened accidentally because I'd written about my family. Right. Uh, I, I didn't even plan to write about them. That was more just an internal exploration. So my writing career got off to a start as a memoirist. And I was really, really, really eager to then pull back and write about, you know, the world and the way things work and the way people make decisions and so on. And within that, I, I just I always wanted to write about things that when people read it, they are inspired, maybe is too heavy a word, to improve somehow. Like, I never wanted to write typical, I guess what you'd call self-help. But I was also never into the kind of, you know, I did some reporting and political reporting and sports reporting and entertainment. I, I wrote a lot of entertainment stuff early on in journalism. And it was fine. It was fun. And it was often interesting. But it didn't have a resonance or a payoff for yeah. me because it was just writing about a thing as opposed to writing about ideas. And yeah. I like ideas. I just prefer them. Yeah. I'm also curious with authors like yourself to talk about the publishing process. Tell us a little bit about what has changed in that process and what, you know, what has not. What has challenged you and what has surprised you publishing in 2015 versus 205? I'm just, I'm very curious in the author's perspective. In that. It's hard for me to give an answer that's useful to anyone, to most people, because while I've had a lot of change, the change is more reflective of my career arc rather than the publishing arc. Um, so... You know, when I published my first book, like anybody who publishes the first book, you're incredibly excited. You can't believe it's happening to you, blah, 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 blah. 
and that first book did relatively for that kind of book for a family memoir about religion did very well and it was I thought you know it was amazing you're getting reviewed in the New York Times it won some awards and that was um you know, more than I could have expected. Then Confessions of a Hero Worshipper didn't do as well, but it was kind of a similar kind of trajectory. But then Freakonomics was just different. It was way, 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 yeah. way, way bigger. Then once yeah. a book becomes big, it becomes even bigger right. because of all the kind of knock-on effects. And then, you know, that coincided then with social media. So first, right. if you want to call blogging social media, which we typically don't, but um, it, yeah, it was a way of self-publishing at the very least. Yeah. And that just changed the kind of writer I was because rather than having to wait for a book publisher or a newspaper or magazine yep. to click the button on what I wrote, I was clicking the button. So that really changed it. What that does is it really changes your relationship as a writer between you and your audience. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, there's no wall between you and your audience. You communicate right to them, and then they comment right back to you. Personally, I love it. In the old days, pre-web, you know, pre basically, when you'd write a book or an article in a magazine or newspaper, there would be letters that people would write. Letters to the editor for the publications or letters to your publisher in the other case. And those tended to be from a certain narrow stripe of reader, the readers who were most upset or oh, interested yeah. Yeah. and who had time to write and the kind of, you know, wherewithal to like find the address and send the, and that's a very small, right? So now, when you're publishing online, whether it was for our blog or then moving into podcasts and or even Twitter and Facebook, you know, you are anyone who wants to reply can reply virtually with no cost, literal cost, time cost, almost nothing, and therefore you get a much better sense of your actual audience rather than that yeah. tiny sliver who are such outliers that they're going to write a letter to the editor. So to me, that's been the single biggest change for me yeah. in publishing that is also you know in common with everyone who publishes is you know your readers they know you if you want if you want them to know you which we do and that to me is incredibly fulfilling and fun uh, i wish i could reply to every question but i would write nothing other than sure. replies to emails if that's what i did yeah that's interesting all right now i want to ask you just a few more questions and that is of, to you as a reader, mm -hmm. not as a writer. So what was the last book that you had a conversation about, and what did you say? When I read for pleasure, I prefer to read fiction because that's more pleasurable to me. Because when I read nonfiction, I'm just constantly rewriting and editing in my yeah, head and challenging. And, you, you know, yeah, there's yeah. a statement there, and I know that's not. I, I wouldn't have written oh, it that way, oh, not yeah. because it's not necessarily true, although I don't think it's necessarily true, but also it's just not expressed well. And that is exhausting. So while I love to read nonfiction for information, it's also a little bit of a busman's holiday. One thing I really like to do is read the books that my kids are reading for school. Oh, yeah. And this is my, honestly my most pleasurable reading at yep. this phase in my life. Uh, my kids are 14 and 13, mm -hmm. and they're both um, really good readers in very different ways. Um, and I love to read behind or, you know, after, yeah. after them or maybe even at the same time. So, you know, this year I've read a bunch of, um, you know, To Kill a Mockingbird. I've read Of Mice and Men. Um, I read, uh, if, is it If I Stay, is that the, yeah. um, is that, which yeah. I love, I love yeah, that yeah. more than my kids, which really surprised yeah. me because when I heard the premise, I had no interest in it. Yeah, that happens a lot. Where um, you like it more than your kids. I've loved it. I thought it was just incredibly well done. Yeah. Um, Night. Uh, Ellie Wiesel. So those are the books that I've been actually having conversations about. You know, I'm a very, very um, family 
oriented human, as is my wife. So we, while we have friends, we spend the vast majority of our waking hours uh, with our our family, with our two kids. Uh, the four of us are very, very tight. Neither of us have, neither my wife nor I have a lot of extended family nearby. Uh, and so we are in, you know, I, I really like my kids. And I figure I only have them at home for a few more years. Oh, so yeah. I just want to, like, squeeze the sponge and get every drop out. Now, it sounds like your kids are both eager readers. But I often ask... If you were to recommend a book to a 13-year-old boy who somewhat stereotypically we often think of as a reluctant reader, do you have a recommendation for that type of boy? Well, I have the most self-serving recommendation in the world, but this is only because people tell me this. You, I cannot tell you how many parents have told me, I have a kid, often a boy, who doesn't read, period. I know what you're about to say. I'm about to hold my hand. And up. they read Freakonomics. They read Freakonomics. And at first I was like, really? And then I realized when you're 12, 13, 14, 15, you're at that period where you're kind of waking up to the way the world works, right? And when you're a kid, you, uh, your parents to some degree protect you and also they're teaching you the basics and they help you form a view of how the world works according to the rules and according to, you know, the authority figures, what they say. And, well, the government says this is the way it works. So, of course, that's got to be the way it works, right? But then you start to, you know, if you have an ounce of sense, you start to say, wait a minute. That doesn't square exactly with my budding adolescent brain. Like, I see that, you know, a politician, for instance, will say one thing in public and then they do something entirely different or someone seems, projects honesty, then turns out to be totally corrupt. What's the story with that? And I think it's very frustrating to be an adolescent or a teenager because you look to your adults, your parents, pr primarily as guides for the way the world really works. But we think that by kind of teaching a moral uh, imperative or a moral view that this is the way we like to think the world works, we think that makes sense. We give them a moral model. But it turns out to be confusing because they yeah. figure out. So I think what Freakonomics does is, I don't think it's amoral, or excuse me, I don't think it's immoral at all what we write about, but it is a little amoral. We say we're not trying to, you know, change the way that you live your life, but we are trying to change the way you look at how the world really works. Some people do amazingly heroic, wonderful, uh, altruistic things. Some people do unbelievably nasty, vile, evil things. Why? And we try to explore the why. It's because they respond to incentives. Somebody creates those incentives. Sometimes yeah. we respond the way the planners plan, and sometimes we don't. And we try to prove these arguments by gathering data. In other words, we're not just a politician right. standing up and saying, you know, if you had a gun law that did this, you wouldn't have any shootings, because those are all BS. And I think kids learn that a lot of what they hear in the public is kind of BS, right. and they're looking for some view some kind of window onto the world that gives them a chance to square the reality they see um, with, you know, common sense. And I think that's what Freakonomics, um, what these books have, have provided. All right, now my final question. It's a little bit of a cliche. I don't care. Were you to be banished to a desert island, you can take three books. Mm. What would they be? I think I would take... Um, the collected works of someone, either Ring Lardner I love, even though he's very dated, I love him. But I might take, you know, Mencken or, uh, I mean, Thurber. 
I'd have to, so one in that category. Um, I would probably take a Saul Bellow book. I might take an I.B. Singer, Isaac Whichever Singer I love. Again, I'd, I'd try to economize by taking some kind of collections maybe, although uh, Bellow, I think, is just the most muscular, the combination of physical muscularity and intellectual muscularity in an in a, in a, in a American, well, Canadian novelist that there is, a Western novelist, um, for, for my taste. I might, I mean, this is the, the biggest cliche possible, I might take uh, collected works of Shakespeare, um, because he knew how to tell a story pretty well. Um, I do like the Bible, and again, you get a lot of bang for your buck. If I could take, you know, if I could take my Gunther Plout uh, edition of the Torah or Tanakh, which has all the commentary, um, that would, you know, that's many, 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 many years of reading and study. Um, and then if I could compress all the Hardy Boys books into one book. That Those were the books that I grew up reading, and I read every Hardy Boys mystery probably about 85 times. Wow. And so I recognize that they're not great books, but I think they're great books because I love them. So I don't really care if they're not great. I love them. And uh, so they really taught me what it's like to not be able to wait to get to the next page. Aww, and then the yeah. minute you finish one, to not be able to wait until you get to the next one. Yeah. So... Um, so there's my more than three Desert Island book collection. Those are good ones. <laughs> Thank you so very much. My pleasure. That was fun. Was Thanks. Fun. Thank you. Thank you for listening. I'm Anna Maria Alessi, and this episode was edited by Sharon Matlin with production help from Jennifer Monroe. The books featured in this episode are available for purchase wherever books are sold. Please be sure to subscribe to Harper Audio Presents, and you can send us a question or comment via our Facebook page. We hope you'll join us next time as we hear more from leading figures across books, culture, and the arts, all brought to you by Harper Audio Presents.